Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name's Danny Horn. And my name's Victoria Lyons. In this episode, we hope to give you a helping hand with your summer reading list. So whether you're planning on lying on the beach, driving through the countryside, or cooking every meal on the barbecue, we've got something for you. And speaking of barbecues, Charlie Parker from the digital team interviewed Tim Hayward, author of Food DIY, which is the first comprehensive manual for DIY cooks. It's kickstarting a revolution in getting everyone to make all their food from scratch. And we're not just talking about baking bread and making jams, although there are some delicious recipes for sourdough and bacon jam. In keeping with this episode's theme, we thought we'd ask Tim for his outdoor cooking tips, starting with a tip on smoking vegetables. I think one of the veg that works really, really well with smoke is tomatoes. Um, and so I, I find most supermarket tomatoes now are such a waste of space, it's hardly worth bothering. Uh, I'll almost invariably uh, dry them a little or bake them for a while in the oven in order to reduce the moisture content and get the flavor uh, increased. So if, you, if I'm going to do that, pretty much whenever I have the slow smoker working and I'm doing a big shoulder of pork or something like that at a low temperature, I'll buy a dozen of the small trays of the medium-sized, totally round tomatoes and lay those on the griddle by the side of the meat. Just whole? Just whole. Mm. They won't cook, they won't burst, but they'll begin to dry like sun-dried tomatoes. Um, plenty of salt sprinkled over them as well. The moisture cooks out, the smoke goes in, and you're left with these fantastic smoked tomatoes. Do you have any uh, recommendations from the book for uh, recipes for a beach barbecue? Oh, beach is great. You can just dig a hole in the sand, pour your barbecue charcoal into it and top it up with some pebbles. Um, and then let it heat up so the pebbles get hot. Then put a layer of wet sack, a layer of seaweed, uh, some shellfish, maybe a lobster, and then cover it with more seaweed, more sacking, and bury it in the sand. And you've got a clam bake. Now, in the book, we talk about doing it in your garden in a wheelbarrow, which is a much more convenient way of doing it in Britain. But honestly, if you're on a beach, terrific way to do it. It's one of the most, it's one of the longest recorded methods of cooking. And we've been doing it since the Neolithic, digging a hole in the ground to maintain the heat. And it is so wonderful. And we can actually see you um, doing an example of the smoking in the wheelbarrow on the video that's on the Penguin UK Books YouTube channel. That's right, yes. yes. Um, what about a great recipe from the book or, or method for a barbecue in the park? Barbecue in the park. I, two things, I suppose. If I'm barbecuing in the park and I don't have the right kit with me, I would just do something really simple. I mean, just a steak. That's dead easy. I suppose the other one that would be really weird is there's a recipe for um, homemade doner kebab. And you make up the elephant leg and you cook it in the kitchen. And then you play a blow lamp over the outside and rotate it on a fork while you slice the meat off to make a doner kebab. Now, it sounds absurd, but because you cook it once and then you put it to one side, you could carry it out with you take your blow lamp along, and sit in the park with a blow lamp, making doner kebabs with some beer. I think that would work for me, yeah. I think that's a, the, the <laughs> best suggestion there, definitely. I want to see more of that in London parks this, this <laughs> summer and parks around the UK. Um, next one, uh, what recipe from the book should a first-timer start with? Oh, uh, brasala. Brasala is dead easy. Um, it's a single muscle. Um, which requires a little bit of cutting from your butcher, but that's salted and then hung up to dry, and it's so simple and so delicious. Uh, it's also called spiced beef or salted beef, but it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. Wonderful. And and then on the same sort of vein, what recipe would you think a pro should really stretch themselves and have a go at? If you're a real pro, you'll go for air dried ham, um, and that's that's a that's a tough one because the wastage, even if you're very very careful on that, is quite high. Um, we don't actually give the full recipe for it in the book. It's sort of we, by the time you've got to the end of the chapter, you'll know what you need to do. But it's uh, it's 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 quite a quite a risky thing, quite a challenge. Yeah. 
Um, and what about someone with passion, but not much space to work in, like a lot of us are living in cities and flats and things like that? Oh, make your own gin. Dead easy. All you need is bottles. The bottles of gin came in, it's fine. That seems fine. I think that works for many city dwellers <laughs> to make their own I gin. So. I think so. <laughs> and our, our final question is, if, uh, if someone tried only one recipe from the book, which is obviously we want to try all of them, um, but which one should it be? It's got to be the bacon. It's got to be. There's, there's one very, very simple recipe for curing bacon that takes about five minutes to set up, and it cures bacon over about three days in your fridge in a Ziploc plastic bag with some salt and sugar. Just try that one once, and you'll be saved forever. That was Tim Hayward providing his DIY tips for this summer's barbecue season. And if you want to hear more from Tim talking about food DIY, head on over to the Penguin Books channel on SoundCloud next week to listen to the full interview. Coming up, Sylvain Tesson tells us about the Siberian landscape. But first, here's Giovanna Fletcher reading an extract from her debut book, Billy and Me, the perfect beach companion this summer. I don't read on my journey to work the following morning. I'm not in the mood. Whereas the night before I suffered from a lack of sleep due to excitement, last night I was left staring at the ceiling all night as I was burdened with the overwhelming sense of dread and humiliation. So instead, on today's walk, I kicked little stones in the branches that had fallen from the trees on the pathway, releasing some of the anger I felt towards myself. As I walk out from the alleyway onto the high street, I'm surprised when I look up the hill to see a figure standing on the doorstep of the shop, peering through the windows. It doesn't take me long to realise it's Billy. A wave of nervous excitement rushes over me as I continue to walk towards him. What are you doing here so early? I ask. Ah, Sophie, there you are, he says, blowing onto his fingers as an attempt to keep them warm in the crisp spring morning air. I wasn't sure when you opened. Not until eight, so you've got quite a wait. Really? Yep. Bugger. I would invite you in, but I can't offer you anything hot until everything's heated up. So no coffee, I'm afraid. I, I don't mind something cold until then. I couldn't just perch on a table and work on my script while you bake or whatever, could I? He asks with pleading eyes. I know that Molly wouldn't mind. In fact, I know she'll be beside herself and bursting to point out the fact that she was correct about him coming back. Okay, come on in then, I sigh, unlocking the door and letting us both in. Thank you. I've got to be on set at nine anyway, so it won't take long. You're still working on your script then? Well, I guess you could say that I kept getting distracted, he says with a glimmering smile in my direction. I think I'll blame Miss Brown for kicking it all off with her suspicious mind. And me for a variety of things, I think. Well, I don't think she'll be doing that again. Not now that she knows that she's in the presence of greatness. In fact, I bet she's been on the phone all night to everyone she knows gushing about you. She'll be telling anyone who will listen that she knew there was something special about you from the start. I swear I can actually see Billy's cheeks redden as he mumbles. I'm sure she hasn't. I find myself taken aback by this bashful side of him. After all, he's a Hollywood superstar. Aren't actors meant to have huge egos and think incredibly highly of themselves? Surely he's used to better praise than that. Right, I say, aware of the time. I've got to get cracking on with the baking. I nod towards the oven. Can I get you anything? No, 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 I'm fine. Just act like I'm not here. I give him a slight smile before heading behind the counter to the ovens, where I whip up the morning batch of muffins, cupcakes, bread and a special carrot cake for Miss Wallace, who has her family over for the weekend. I'm almost finished when I hear Molly swing through the door at 7.45, ready to knock together her signature scones. I watch her stop in confusion when she sees Billy sat at a table, and then break out into a smile. 
I instantly know what she's thinking. Back again already, Mr Buskin. I didn't expect to see you here so soon. At least, not until opening hours anyway. I wasn't sure what time you opened, but thankfully I was let in to get on with some work. Mm. Sophie's good like that. I'll leave you to get on with it. Let us know if you need anything. Molly's still smirking when she comes behind the counter and removes her coat. Good morning, my dear, she says to me, before giving me a wink and mouthing the words, See, what did I say? I can't help but blush. Having finished my contribution to the morning load, I watch Billy, who is still looking increasingly wound up at the papers in front of him. In an attempt to make up for my appalling behaviour, I decide to say thank you and sorry by taking him a pot of coffee and some freshly baked breakfast muffins. He looks up in surprise when I place the loaded tray onto his table. What's this for? It looked like you could do with it. Your frown lines have been getting increasingly worse for the last hour. Not good news for someone whose face regularly gets blown up to the size of a house. The words spurt from my mouth before I have a chance to censor myself. I mean, in cinemas, because the screens are so big. I'm not saying you have a big head or anything. I'm aware of myself rapidly turning into a bubbling buffoon. But Billy takes the comment the way I originally intended and he begins laughing out loud uncontrollably yet again. Once he's calmed down, he looks down at the pages in his hands and whimpers, It's just these lines I'm trying to learn. Actually, he says, as his little eyes twinkle with an idea, I don't suppose you could sit and go over them with me, could you? It's just so much easier to do if, if you have someone to read them out loud with. I contemplate saying no, but somehow Billy's pleading eyes win me over. Hand them over, I say, holding out my hand. I'm no professional, but I did do my fair share of amateur dramatics when I was younger. A slight white lie. I've only had one experience of acting, and that was when I played the Wicked Witch of the East in a local children's production of The Wizard of Oz when I was nine. You know, the one who dies as soon as she appears. I think the part is usually just a pair of stuffed stockings, but seeing as I'd been paying £2 a week to be part of the club, they had to do something with me. Mum and Dad said they'd never seen the character played with such enthusiasm, which I took for a compliment at the time. Billy smiles as I pull out a chair and sit down and join him. Thank you. Are you sure I'm not distracting you from your work? Sadly not, I smile. Our regulars won't start coming in for at least half an hour. Now, where should we go from? Giovanna Fletcher, reading an extract from the charming and wonderfully heartwarming book Billy and Me. We've also got another audiobook extract for you later, but you'll have to keep listening to find out what it is. Or you can just cheat and have a look at the episode synopsis. But up next, Sylvain Tesson tells us about how he escaped the stresses of Western living. His book, Consolations of the Forest, is about his experience, and here he starts by telling us the most important thing he learned whilst he was living alone in a cabin for six months. I think the most important thing I learned in this hut was uh, that uh, time was not only uh, a category to be, um, to be um, controlled. Because uh, uh, um, up to this uh, journey in, in my cabin, in my hut, uh, I was very uh, full of um, uh, fear about the flowing of the time. And I was always trying to catch the time and to control it and to uh, uh, rentabilizing it. You know, I, I was trying to, to make the... I was using the time like you, you use a, a bag when you are packing and you try to put more and more and more stuff in your bag uh, even it's, if it's uh, already full. 
and that's how I use from the time. And I think that in the city uh, we use like that the, the time. You, you, you don't you don't hear the time flowing. And in this hut, I, I learned to do that, and I I was aware that uh, to be boring is sometimes a way to fertilize to fertilize yourself. You, you just sit. I, I have never done in in 38 years uh, in, uh, of my life, and I, I never stayed. Up to, uh, up to this uh, trip, I never stayed uh, 15 minutes on, on a window just looking uh, at the snow uh, falling. I mean, it's a very common idea, and a lot of people they don't need to go in Siberia to do that. But me, I, I had to do it because I, I was quite uh, excited by the life, but to, and uh, and I had to 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 uh, 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 close myself in a hut far from in the middle of nowhere just to learn that that you can, you can spend a very great moment with doing nothing. I think the, the, the three main um, uh, luxury that I felt in this hut was the quality of silence. So, yeah, amazing silence, amazing silence. The loneliness and the cold. And I think that these three categories uh, will be a very uh, luxurious product tomorrow, in the world of tomorrow. That was Sylvain Tesson talking about his experiences living in Siberia, which you can read more about in his book, Consolations of the Forest. Right, recommendations for summer reads by Penguin staff will be coming up shortly, but firstly here's a reading from The Old Ways by Robert McFarlane. The Old Ways is the quintessential summer escape following McFarlane's historical, geological and literary journey on ancient tracks. You could say this book is the alternative travel guide to the British Isles and beyond. The next day, my birthday, was one of the most charmed of my life. Blue resin sky, coppery sun, a white wind. It passed with the deep, easy happiness of a castaway day. I had no imperative other than to spend it in the most enjoyable manner possible. All but one of the other boats sailed early, leaving the shants in a spray of roots. Ian and I, along with a kind couple called Rob and Karen, on whose boat we had been made welcome the night before, decided to stay for at least another night. The winds were changing, and we wouldn't be able to push on south to Harris, so we wanted to make the most of the islands we had reached. Walking, exploring, beachcombing, up and over the tops of the hills and along the shores, our small group drifting along together and then pulling apart. I scrambled down to a westerly headland and fished from rock slabs, grippy with barnacles, slippery with kelp, that slanted down into the water, I caught a big pollock, five or six pounds, bronze on silver flanks, coal shovel tail, lured from the weed forests with a spinner. Where it was still, the water was jelly clear. Between the rocks it chopped and sneezed. Under arches and overhangs it was dark as mafic glass. I climbed to the top of Island and Tay and followed its southeastern cliff edges. Below me were wave-smashed theatres of rock, echoey sea-caves and bird-filled zorns. Here and there I flopped onto my belly and peered over the brink, looking down to where the sea shampooed the rocks and listening to the yabber of the seabirds. Tears of birds were in flight, dividing the air into strata, kittiwakes and fulmars, then puffins, then gannets. I felt a sensation of candour and amplitude, of the body and mind opened up, of thought diffusing at the body's edges rather than ending at the skin the light as a weir pouring over the edge of Europe. 
At the high point of Ailanante was a slung hammock of rock that had been heated by the sun. At noon or so I lay shirtless and shoeless in it, a comfortable crusoe, looking eastward over the main channel of the Minch. Tide and wave were writing their scripts upon the blue water. White wind-glyphs curled from the air in markings that reminded me of the patterns on the backs of spiders or of Arabic lettering. Later in the afternoon I sat facing west towards the dropping sun and read Adam Nicholson's fine book Sea Room, a study of the islands by one of their former owners, a copy of which I had found in the island's only current habitation, a whitewashed bothy. Nicholson had inherited the islands from his father, but had never considered himself anything other than their temporary paper possessor. He had left them free for visitors and kept the bothy hospitably maintained and open. The Shants are not really a lonely place, Nicholson remarks in the first chapter of his book. That is a modern illusion. For most of their history they were profoundly related to the world in which they were set. Their position in the centre of the Atlantic seaways meant that they had been a stopping-off point for sea journeys for five thousand years, a safe harbour in the mid-minch. Our modern view of such islands as orphans or widows, drenched in a kind of Dickensian poignancy of abandonment, is on the whole wrong, he continues. They are, in fact, the hub for millions of bird and animal lives, as dynamic as any trading flora, theatre of competition and enrichment. They are the centre of their own universe, the organising node in a web of connections, both human and natural, which extends first to the surrounding seas, then to the shores on all sides, and beyond that, along the seaways that stretch for thousands of miles along the margins of the Atlantic and on into the heartlands of Europe. I like that image of the web of connections, the seaways leading, like Thomas's land paths, from everywhere to everywhere, joining deep ocean to coastal shelf to estuary to river to back country. I also recognise Nicholson's account of having been chronically shaped by his island times on the shants. The place has entered me, he wrote adoringly. It has coloured my life like a stain. Small islands have often inspired dreams of total knowledge in those who love them. I've read the work of several islomaniacs over the years, Tim Robinson's deep topographies of the Irish Aran Islands, Nicholson on the Shants and Lawrence Durrell on Corfu, as well as Nan Shepherd's study of her inland island of the Cairngorm Massive and Gilbert White's record of his Hampshire parish of Selborne. All these people had been animated at first by the delusion of a comprehensive totality, the belief that they might come to know their chosen place utterly because of its boundedness and all had, after long acquaintance, at last understood that familiarity with a place will lead not to absolute knowledge, but only ever to further inquiry. For Shepherd, the Cairngorm Massif was not a crossword to be cracked full of encrypted ups and downs. Greater understanding of the mountain's interrelations served only to reveal other realms of incomprehension. She did not relish her discoveries as much as her ignorance. The mind cannot carry away all that the mountain has to give, she wrote, nor does it always believe possible what it has carried away. Down on the storm beach as dusk approached, I spent an hour building a small domed and chambered cairn out of dolerite for the pleasure of the act of construction. 
It was two feet or so high, with corbelled sides curving up to a capstone roof, and its open doorway, lintel-topped and buttress-braced, faced due east, ready to be flooded by the rising sun. The smoothed dolerite boulders were shiny black when I brought them out of the sea, but they dried to a wolf grey. I found and kept a transom-ended stone of gneiss, fist-sized, and coopered with a quartz band. Scouring the beach, I discovered a single white stone the size and shape of an ostrich egg, and I placed that upright in the centre of the cairn. I was pleased when I'd finished the structure. It looked like a miniature maze how, which would last until the next big tide, or visitor's boot. As the sun finally fell, I lay on the macker, hands behind my head. Time, briefly, felt not absent, the islander's dream of a history, but rather multiplied in its forms. Orange mites traversed boulders, Xanthoria pariatina photosynthesized. Puffins shifted in their roosts, the tide gathered northward's pace. Rainwater that had fallen three days earlier filtered down inside the fissures of Ailanate, the body of the pollock stiffened in the black bucket by the bothy's door, and the sun loosed its summer light as it had done for uncountable years across the sea, the island, and my body, a liquid so rich that I wanted to eat it, store it, make honey of it for when winter came. That was an extract of the audiobook edition of The Old Ways by Robert McFarlane, read by Roy Macmillan. Some of you may have seen that Penguin ran a competition last month looking for Penguin's Wayfarer. The chosen winner, Sarah Thomas, is currently travelling across Britain, visiting some of the paths in The Old Ways, and you can follow her journey at ajourneyonfoot.com. Next up, we're heading to the sun-drenched western coast of Italy and modern-day Hollywood in Jess Walters' book, Beautiful Ruins. Jess Walters talks to us about writing and his love of Italy, followed by an extract from the audiobook edition, read by Eduardo Ballerini. With every book, you have to start over fresh. I think it's one of the most surprising and daunting things that you find as an author, that even after six novels, it doesn't really get any easier. You still have to just start from scratch. Yeah, you know how to cook, but it's like this is a brand new recipe with ingredients you've never used before in a kitchen you've never seen. Beautiful Ruins was especially challenging that way because of its braided stories, the intertwining of all those characters and those styles. It was like this intricate puzzle I found myself putting together. I began to see the book itself as a kind of celebration of storytelling and all those shapes and forms. The beautiful ruins of the title mean a lot to me, the ruins of Italy, the ruins of Hollywood, the characters themselves, but also storytelling itself, which is a kind of lovely ruin for us. There are these artifacts that we leave behind, the stories we tell about who we were and what we cared about. I first went to Italy with my wife in 1997, the year my mother died of cancer. I was so charmed by the country, and especially by the Cinque Terre, and I kept wishing that I could have shown her this place before she died. I suppose that was the genesis, that trip, and for years I simply had this young woman who was about my mother's age arriving on the shores of this town that I'd invented in the year 1962, and this young man, Pasquale Tursi, falling in love with her. Around that time, I'd begun to dabble in Hollywood. My first book was made into a TV film, and I'd worked on a few other screenplays. So the woman on the shore quickly became an actress. 
And I love that period of the 1960s. I drive a 1963 Continental convertible, at least when I can keep it running. And I love that period of film in Italy, Fellini's Italy. So I chipped away on the novel over those 15 years. In the meantime, I wrote four other novels during that time. But I just kept coming back to Pasquale and to D and to the swirling together of all those lives I'd started imagining. I loved recording the audio version of The Financial Lives of the Poets, but it was also one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was a week of stopping and starting and tripping on my suddenly swollen tongue. As a writer, I love riffs, and I love long, twisting sentences, the rich play of words against one another. But there were times when I was recording that book when I thought, man, I'd like to punch this author right in the mouth. But to me, writing is always musical. I read my work aloud every day, usually at the end of writing. So recording my own book was actually pretty familiar. It sounded right. The hard thing was remembering how I'd done something before, how I'd done a certain voice. And I'd find myself slipping into impersonations, and I'd think, how did Sean Connery just get into my book? No thanks, I'm waiting for someone. That's why it was so exciting to have an actor and reader as accomplished and talented as Eduardo Bellarini record Beautiful Ruins because I was excited to hear the interpretation of what I'd done through his voice. And it was great to stay involved in the audiobook by getting to introduce the book and its epigraphs it seemed like the best of both worlds to me. And it also means readers are spared hearing my Bruto Italiano in the voice of Sean Connery. Buongiorno, Mr. Tursi. I love audiobooks. I really began listening to them when my children were little and we'd take these long car trips. I especially loved the series of unfortunate event books by Lemony Snicket and the books of M.T. Anderson. Both had stories that my kids loved and literary wordplay that my wife and I gobbled up. I began listening to books on CD whenever I had to drive anywhere. I loved the way the author's voice channeled through the voice of another reader and the way the books open up. I just listened to Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn and the short stories of Vladimir Nabokov, and I love all kinds of audiobooks, crime novels, literary fiction, nonfiction, I just listened to Dylan Thomas reading his poetry, and it was completely transporting. Chapter 1. The Dying Actress April 1962. Porto Vergogna, Italy. The dying actress arrived in his village the only way one could come directly, in a boat that motored into the cove, lurched past the rock jetty, and bumped against the end of the pier. She wavered a moment in the boat's stern, then extended a slender hand to grip the mahogany railing. With the other, she pressed a wide-brimmed hat against her head. All around her, shards of sunlight broke on the flickering waves. Twenty meters away, Pasquale Tursi watched the arrival of the woman as if in a dream, or rather, he would think later, a dream's opposite, a burst of clarity after a lifetime of sleep. Pasquale straightened and stopped what he was doing, what he was usually doing that spring, trying to construct a beach below his family's empty pensione. Chest deep in the cold Ligurian Sea, Pasquale was tossing rocks the size of cats in an attempt to fortify the breakwater, to keep the waves from hauling away his little mound of construction sand. Pasquale's beach was only as wide as two fishing boats, and the ground beneath his dusting of sand was scalloped rock. But it was the closest thing to a flat piece of shoreline in the entire village. A rumor of a town that had ironically, or perhaps hopefully, been designated Porto 
despite the fact that the only boats to come in and out regularly belonged to the village's handful of sardine and anchovy fishermen. The rest of the name, Vergogna, meant shame, and was a remnant from the founding of the village in the 17th century as a place for sailors and fishers to find women of a certain moral and commercial flexibility. On the day he first saw the lovely American, Pasquale was chest-deep in daydreams as well, imagining grubby little Porto Vergogna as an emergent resort town, and himself as a sophisticated businessman of the 1960s, a man of infinite possibility at the dawn of a glorious modernity. Everywhere he saw signs of il boom, the surge in wealth and literacy that was transforming Italy. Why not here? He'd recently come home from four years in bustling Florence, returning to the tiny backward village of his youth, imagining that he brought vital news of the world out there, a glittering era of shiny macchine, of televisions and telephones, of double martinis and women in slender pants, of the kind of world that had seemed to exist before only in the cinema. Porto Vergogna was a tight cluster of a dozen old whitewashed houses, an abandoned chapel, and the town's only commercial interest, the tiny hotel and café owned by Pasquale's family, all huddled like a herd of sleeping goats in a crease in the sheer cliffs. Behind the village, the rocks rose six hundred feet to a wall of black striated mountains. Below it, the sea settled in a rocky, shrimp-curled cove from which the fishermen put in and out every day. Isolated by the cliffs behind and the sea in front, the village had never been accessible by car or cart, and so the streets, such as they were, consisted of a few narrow pathways between the houses, brick-lined roads skinnier than sidewalks, plunging alleys and rising staircases so narrow that unless one was standing in the Piazza San Pietro, the little town square, it was possible anywhere in the village to reach out and touch walls on either side. In this way, remote Porto Vergogna was not so different from the quaint cliffside towns of the Cinque Terre to the north, except that it was smaller, more remote, and not as picturesque. In fact, the hoteliers and restaurateurs to the north had their own pet name for the tiny village pinched into the vertical cliff seam. Baldracacuro, the whore's crack, that was an extract from the Beautiful Ruins audiobook read by Eduardo Ballerini, courtesy of HarperCollins US. Finally, to finish off this episode, here are some recommendations from the people here in Penguin Towers. We ambushed them at their desks, so please excuse the keyboards clacking and the phones ringing. I'm recommending as my summer read Bonjour Tristesse by Francois Sagan. It's set in the French Riviera, it's beautifully written and it's all about the pains and joys of being a teenager. And it's short, so you can slip it in your beach bag. Kate Atkinson, Life After Life. Funny, complex, exquisitely plotted. She's a genius. So my summer read would be, without a doubt, I Am Zlatan by Zlatan Ibrahimovic. If you don't know who Zlatan is, he is six foot five inches of pure man. He is Sweden's all-time top goal scorer. He's won 19 trophies. He's the most expensive footballer in the world with combined transfer fees. That's 150 million quid. He likes fast cars, fishing, hunting. He has something to say on 
everyone in world football from Mourinho to Messi to David Beckham and I recommend this book to any football fan or any sports fan who wants an entertaining read. I'm reading Mr Foote's Other Leg by Ian Kelly which is a pretty good biography of a 17th century stand-up comedian who lost his leg um, in an accident and then went on to take the mickey out of himself only having one leg for years. Uh, the book that I think you should read this summer is Swim Bike Run by the fabulous Brownlee brothers who were the two young Yorkshire lads who stormed the Olympic triathlon uh, gold and bronze. Um, they tell their story in a completely fun, accessible um, way, but they're also incredibly inspiring and there are little sections in there about how to get into each of these um, sports and how to train and how to tackle them sort of physically and mentally. Uh, it's a great read really compelling and um, we'll take you back to that glorious Olympics summer 2012. I'll be rereading the old ways this summer and um, just walking around in the forest and uh, hanging out outside. This summer I'm recommending all my family and friends and therefore you too to read Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. It is a wonderful book that transports you from 1960s Italy to modern day Hollywood and I fell in love with it completely polished it off in a day and was very sad when I got to the end. I'd recommend How I Live Now, which was reissued a couple of years ago and the film is coming out in October. So, great opportunity to read the book ahead of seeing the film. Well, that's what our fellow penguins are reading. Mine would have to be The Secret Rooms by Catherine Bailey, where the author set out to write one story, but her research unveiled a much more compelling mystery around the ninth Duke of Rutland. It's from the Downton Abbey era, but with plenty of twists, surprises and shocking truths. Well, I'm going to recommend a summer listen, as the audiobook edition of The Rosie Project is just great for lying in the sun. The reader, Dan O'Grady, just seems to capture the voices and the tone perfectly. The only downside is you do look a bit odd chuckling to yourself in public. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To hear more interviews, author readings and audiobook extracts, head to our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash penguin books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast. My recommended summer read is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. It's a delightful romp through an old-school romantic comedy, and it's jolly good. Enjoy.